so then we're just walking down the street and it didn't take very long. It was just a few minutes later, a police car pulls up and like half a dozen police officers surround us on the curb. And they have SWAT written on their badges, on, you know, on, the, on their uniforms. So we're surrounded by a Chinese SWAT team um, who don't speak English. On this episode, we're not only going to talk about what it's like to find yourself in the middle of civil unrest, but in a place where foreigners are not allowed. We will also talk about why learning as much of the local language is important, and we'll talk about the importance of checking your local country's government website for travel advisories before visiting your destination. I hope you brought your passport. This is going to be a one arresting episode. Listening to the Travel Horror Stories podcast, a show that listens to real stories from travel bloggers and travelers just like you. Then we unpack those stories to discuss safety tricks, prevention treats, horror hacks, and follow up tactics. The goal is to turn travel nightmares into dreams of beaches sunshine and margaritas and as always you can head over to travelhorrorstoriespodcast.com for this and all the previous episodes their show notes and links to all the other places you enjoy listening to podcasts if you're listening via apple Podcasts, don't forget to give the episode a five-star rating and leave a comment because that will help more people find the show and now live from the rudderless travel studio in downtown toronto canada Here's your host, Christopher Rudder. Hey everyone, and welcome back. So glad you are here, and I am glad you are choosing to spend some time with me. The weather outside is not too bad. We are heading towards the end of April, so it's been a mixed bag of nice weather, which is pretty typical for us here in Toronto, Canada. We are technically opening things up a little bit with COVID-19 safety protocols in place, but we can certainly head into lockdown at any moment. It's one of the joys of living in the biggest city in the country Uh, during a pandemic. Vaccines are getting in arms, but until most people are vaccinated, we will continue to play this open for business lockdown, open for business lockdown game. But Anyways, we got a good one for you today, so let's jump right in with my co-pilot for this trip, Wendy, from The Nomadic Vegan. How are you, Wendy? Yeah, I'm doing all right. I mean, like you said, COVID-19, everyone right now is at home in lockdown, and that's what I'm doing. I'm here in Lisbon, Portugal, which is my home base whenever I'm not traveling, um, so that's a bit weird. It's something to get used to. But uh, yeah, my husband and I, we're here, we're safe, and we're fine. Awesome. That's so good to hear. And how do you say your last name? Is it Warneth? Yeah, um, it's a German name. So I think in German, it would be something closer, closer to Vernet. But my ancestors came over to the States a long time ago, and none of my family speaks German anymore. So yeah, we just pronounced it as Warneth. Oh, okay, so with us is Wendy Werneth. How's that? <laughs> yeah, that's great. <laughs> Perfect. So tell us a little bit about yourself and your blog. Sure, thanks. So 
Uh, I've been traveling the world for more than 20 years now. Um, like I said, I'm originally from the States. I grew up in Mobile, Alabama in the South. Uh, but then I left the States in 1999 to take a job working at Disneyland Paris. Mm. And uh, yeah, <laughs> at the time, I, it was supposed to be a six-month contract, and then I was going to go back to normal life in the States. So I didn't realize that that was going to be a whole change of lifestyle for me. But in the end, it was. Once I started traveling, I just never wanted to stop. So <laughs> Um, I mean, I've obviously been back to the States to visit. I still have family there, but I haven't lived there for more than 20 years now. And wow. I've, yeah. <laughs> um, so I've been doing lots of different things. I mean, yeah, in 20 years, I've gone through different phases of life and, you know, picked up different jobs along the way. I was a tour guide in Italy for a while. That's where I met my husband. Um, <laughs> I worked at various sports events around the world, uh, and then I was a translator at the UN in Geneva for about six years, and now I'm based in Lisbon, uh, not for work. Uh, we just chose to base ourselves here because we really love it here, and so now, even though the name of my blog is The Nomadic Vegan, uh, so I am vegan. Obviously, that would be weird if I wasn't. Uh, <laughs> But um, as far as the nomadic part goes, I actually call myself kind of semi-nomadic now because normally when we're able to travel, you know, when we're not in lockdown because of <laughs> the virus, uh, normally we travel for about six months out of the year and then we're here in Lisbon the other half of the year, which actually works out really well for us. It's a nice balance. Ah, I know another travel blogger who does that as well. Um, her name is Nora Dunn. Uh, she was traveling full time for like 12 years and then, um, and now she's back home in Toronto. And so now she travels for six months out of the year and then six months she stays at home, which is pretty cool. Yeah, it works great for us. It's nice to have a home to come back to. Um, but also, you know, to be able to go out, you know, on the road for a long time and, um, kind of take things slowly and, um, yeah, it works really well. Awesome. And how much countries have you visited? I have visited 117 countries. Oh, my gosh. Wow. I got a long way to go. I'm only at 30. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, I think country <laughs> counting is a bit overrated. Like, I don't really like to do it um, because that doesn't really tell you that much about what you've experienced or what you've seen. You know, if you can spend one night in India and go to the Taj Mahal and say, okay, I've seen India, but that's nothing compared to being there for four months and traveling all over the country. Um, you know, so I think you could have a much more fulfilling experience staying in one place than you could having a whirlwind tour, you know, where you visit 20 in country, 20 countries in 20 days kind of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, that's a very good point. Yeah, so uh, are you up for playing a game? I love games. <laughs> Fantastic, good, because we got a good game for you to play. So we're going to play uh, three stories, two truths, one lie. Uh, you're going to tell me three stories. Two of them are going to be true, and one of them is going to be a lie. And I'm going to try to guess which one is the lie. Okay. Yep, let's do it. <laughs> okay. All right, so first story. 
Um, these are all going to be travel stories because, okay. yeah, my, my life is pretty much travel. So that's, this that's is a travel podcast, so it works. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that works. Okay, so this story comes from uh, a trip around West Africa that I took in 2007. And so my husband, he was not my husband yet, but my fiance and I were taking a bus or actually we were supposed to take a train. That was the original plan was we were going to take a train from Dakar, which is the capital of Senegal, to Bamako, which is the capital of the neighboring country, Mali. Um, so in total, this is a journey of about 1,200 kilometers. Um, so we had already, you know, gone to the train station a few days before to check the, the timetable and everything. We knew when our train was going to leave. You had to buy the tickets on the same day. It wasn't possible to buy them in advance. So we went to the train station like a few hours in advance to get our ticket. And we see a sign on the front door where... It had previously said that it was leaving on, say, whatever it was, the 6th of April. And then some, someone had just taken a marker and marked over the 6th and made it 7, 7 of April. So the train was not leaving until the next day. Because <laughs> um, that's just how things go in West Africa. Wow, so okay. We had to find a plan B. Uh, well, this could be a really drawn out story. We could do a whole podcast about the story, but I'll try to keep it short. Um, <laughs> you could always come back for season two. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, that might be fun, actually. Um, all right. So plan B was we found a bus uh, that was leaving later that afternoon. And so, like I said, it was 1,200 kilometers. Uh, so if this had been, you know, in a developed country that had a good road system that would take maybe something like 10 hours driving time um in west africa you would at least double that so let's say 20 hours driving time um but we ended up on the bus from hell so bus broke down i can't even tell you how many times uh fights broke out fist fights broke out on the bus um a teenage girl in one of these fights got her shirt ripped off of her and she had no bra on. So she's just standing there bare breasted in the bus until someone can give her a shirt. Like so many things happened uh, on this, this bus ride from hell. And we ended up getting to Bamako 81 hours after we had left. <laughs> that's, that's, the, that's the first story. <laughs> that's the first story. Yeah. Oh my gosh. If, okay. If, if that's, if that's a lie, Right, that's a pretty damn good lie. That's all yeah. I'm gonna say about that. Okay, go <laughs> story number two. <laughs> all right, uh, story number two. This was actually a business trip. Um, so after I resigned from the UN, I said I used to be a translator there. Occasionally, I'll, they'll still give me uh, freelance work, and I'll go on short report report writing gigs for them for various mm-hmm. places around the world. Um, so they sent me on a report writing job to Granada, Spain. Okay. Um, so it was up to me to buy the the flight and then I was going to get reimbursed for it. So at the time that I bought it, uh, I was flying from London to Granada. And I remember when I bought the ticket, I thought it seemed kind of expensive, but I knew I wasn't going to end up paying for it myself. So I didn't really worry about it. Um, so then I get on the flight 
I'm, I had work to do beforehand to prepare for the meeting. So I'm, you know, on my laptop the whole time, working away, working away. And after a while, I'm like, shouldn't we be there by now? Because it's only <laughs> supposed to be about a two and a half hour flight, right? From London to Granada. So I asked the uh, flight attendant, you know, what, what time are we supposed to arrive? And it turned out that I wasn't on a flight to Granada, Spain. I was on a flight to Granada, the island in the Caribbean. Oh. <laughs> Which is an 11-hour <laughs> flight. <laughs> oh, no. Instead of a two-and-a-half-hour flight. And wow. obviously on the wrong side of the world from where I was supposed to be <laughs> for this business trip. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, my um, gosh. Yeah, so so I didn't make it to the meeting in time. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And oh they God. were not very happy with me. <laughs> All right. Okay. Story number okay. three. Story number three. Um, I've actually been thinking about this story a lot uh, now that we're in this lockdown situation, which hopefully it's over by the time your listeners hear this story. But um Right now, it's certainly in the forefront of everyone's minds. Right. And this is actually not the first time that I've been in a kind of lockdown situation. Oh, so um, the first one was for very different reasons. But it was in China. And it was in uh, Xinjiang, which is a far western province of China, uh, where the main people who live there is are an ethnic people known as the Uyghurs. Mm -hmm. And uh, so when I was there in 2009, there was an uprising of the Uyghur people against the Chinese, the, the ethnic Chinese who are, you know, ruling their province as part of the, their country, the country of China. Right. Um, and so my husband and I didn't actually know that it was happening until we were on a train because it started in the capital of Xinjiang, uh, a city called Urumqi. And we, we had been there for a couple of hours in the morning, but just to switch like from uh, the bus station to the train station, because we hadn't actually been in Urumqi the night when all of this happened. But just getting from the bus station to the train station, we noticed that things seemed weird in the city. Like some, we tried to flag down a taxi and several taxi drivers wouldn't take us and we didn't know why. And um, then we saw some tanks, like a couple of big military tanks were blocking oh, one of the roads. And we're like, huh, well, that's weird. Um, <laughs> but we still had no idea what was happening until we and we got on our train safely. And then several hours into the, the train journey, a friend texted us and said, hey, are you okay? Because 140 people were killed <laughs> yesterday in Urumqi, wow. um, in the city that we had just left from. And uh, and this was 2009, so it was before smartphones. Uh, we didn't have access to the internet uh, while we were on the train. And even once we arrived in the city where we were going, we still didn't really have access to the internet because China just shut everything down. Wow. And we had no idea of what was going on and we couldn't for at first we were able to text on our phones after that that stopped working as well so um it, and they wouldn't let us check into 
the hotel that we were going to check into, they said, no, you have to go to a four-star hotel because those are the only ones that allow foreigners. So we had to pay like much more than we had expected to pay for accommodation and basically just stay there for days and not leave our hotel because we weren't allowed. And we could just like watch from our window and watch all the military tanks driving around the roundabout outside and patrolling the streets. Um, until we couldn't, and the reason we couldn't leave was because we were heading to Kyrgyzstan. So we were going to be, our plan was to cross the border from China into Kyrgyzstan, but our visas for Kyrgyzstan only started on a certain day and that day hadn't come yet. So we had to wait until our visas became valid before we could actually leave the country. So in the meantime, yeah, we were just stuck inside this four-star hotel in the middle of a military lockdown. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Well, I will give you credit to the level of detail that you put into each one of these stories. It makes makes my job that much more harder. Um, Mm -hmm. And and the way that you're telling the story sounds like every single one of them could be very plausible. So Mm -hmm. I'm going to go for the one that to me, it just seems it just stands out. And I've made this mistake before where I either don't choose the obvious one and it was the obvious one, or I choose the obvious one and it wasn't the obvious one. Okay. So I'm just going to go ahead and just say that the one about you choosing the flight for Granada and ending up in the wrong Granada is the lie. Dang it. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to explain why I chose that one. Okay. Uh, I mean, it seems like it's a quite plausible thing that could happen, but it just, I, I, for some reason, I just really felt the level of detail within the first story and the third one, Mm. which is like out of control. Like, I mean, it was really like, whoa. Right. And then the second story, okay, fine. Like you had a lot of detail, but it was just, it was like, hmm. (laughs) <laughs> it doesn't compare to the other two. <laughs> mm, yeah, fair enough. I'm not a great liar. And, uh, <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> I, I guess that's a good thing. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. No, awesome. you do if while en route to visit an important buddhist temple in china you suddenly find yourself surrounded by loads of police and a swat unit your story that you're going to tell today is actually um along those lines no yeah it's kind of similar to the lockdown lockdown story in xinjiang and it it happened also in china and it happened uh, just a few months earlier than than that lockdown story. Wow, okay, so maybe it happened a few months earlier. So maybe you could actually, well, we'll tell your story for sure. And mm-hmm. then if you have time, you can you can get into that, the the third the third story, which is actually the lie. I mean, the truth, the, the uh-huh. third story. If we have time, we can get into that a little bit because it's all, it's sort of connected, right? A little bit, yeah. I mean, um, two different ethnic groups, but they're both ethnic groups that are being controlled by China and that are considered to be part of China. And it's about China's reaction to 
uh, uprisings from those groups. So yeah, in that way, it is quite similar. And both, and you were, and you guys were stuck in <laughs> both of them. So, yeah, yeah. Well, in one case, we got stuck inside and weren't allowed to get out, and in the other case, which is the story I'm going to tell now, we weren't allowed to get in, <laughs> oh, and we got kicked out. <laughs> okay, all right, fair enough. Okay, so all right, so on that note, then yeah, let's let's get into your story. So, uh, what brought you to uh, China? What was inspiring you to go there? Uh, we were actually there for work. Um, I mentioned briefly that I had worked at a few different sports events around the world. And that's actually my husband's field or his background is in sports journalism. Right. So uh, we were there in preparation for the uh, Asian Games, which were going to take place in Guangzhou, China in 2010. Right. And so we were there in 2009. Um, working in preparation for these games. And so it was a unique situation because we were working for like two weeks at a time and then we would have two weeks off and then we would go back to work in Guangzhou for another two weeks and then we'd have two weeks off. Mm -hmm. Um, So this gave us a chance to travel around different parts of China during those two-week periods when we weren't working. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So the very first two-week period that we had, we decided to go to Gansu, which is a really remote part of China that very few Western tourists go to. And in hindsight, that was probably not a wise choice for our first trip uh, because we really didn't know what we were getting into. And since then, I've been back to China many times and I've studied Chinese, the language, for a number of years. And so now I can get around much better. But the whole reason that I started studying Chinese was because of all of the communication problems that we had on this first trip that was just so infuriating. Um, (laughs) So, uh, yeah, we went to Gansu, and one of the the places that we most wanted to visit uh, in that region was a Tibetan Buddhist monastery called the Lebrong Monastery, which we had read about, and it just sounded really beautiful and like a very special spiritual place. Um, So I should explain... uh, Tibet, as most people know, is an autonomous region that's governed by China. Uh, But then even outside that autonomous region, you also have other areas that are inside China that are ethnically Tibetan. Or I mean, the the majority of the population that lives there are Tibetans. Um, So that's the case in this particular part of Gansu. Gansu is the province, and then you have a prefecture within that, uh, which is called Gannan, which is a majority Tibetan. And so that's where the Lebrong Monastery is, and it's one of the most important monasteries to to Tibetans, all all Tibetan Buddhists, regardless of whether they actually live in Tibet or whether they live in other parts of China. Um, and so we went to the bus station to get a bus to the Lebrong Monastery, and the bus drivers wouldn't let us on the bus. Mm-hmm. And um, we tried a few different buses, and like I said, didn't speak any Chinese, but I had you know the characters, Chinese characters for the name of the place that we wanted to go. It was in my guidebook, and so I could look and compare that to the the characters that were written on the sign on the front of the bus, and I could see, yeah, yeah, that's where we want to go. And they just wouldn't let us on the bus, and we didn't understand what they were saying. We had no idea what was going on. 
And so got really frustrated and this happened several times. And eventually one of the drivers did let us on. Um, and his bus was not going all the way to the LeBron Monastery, but it was going in the direction that we wanted to go. And then we would be able to stop, you know, at his terminus and then switch to another bus to go the rest of the way. Right. Um, so, but when he got started arriving in the town where his bus was supposed to finish, he made us, the, just the two of us, get off like on the outskirts of the town well before he reached the actual bus station. He just opens the door and like shoes us out. <laughs> and Whoa. so again, we have no idea what's going on. <laughs> we don't know really where we are, but we decide to just, you know, start walking in the direction that the bus went because that was obviously the direction of the bus station and we would get there eventually. Um, and so then we're just walking down the street and it didn't take very long. It was just a few minutes later that we hear and a police car pulls up and like half a dozen police officers surround us on the curb. <laughs> Oh my gosh. And, yeah. <laughs> and they have SWAT written on their badges on, you know, on the on their uniforms. So we're surrounded by a Chinese SWAT team um, who don't speak English. I mean, they spoke a tiny bit of English. They asked us for our postcards when they meant passports. Um, but I figured out that they probably didn't want postcards. They probably wanted passports. <laughs> <laughs> Here's a postcard of my trip in Disneyland. Would you like to see that? <laughs> yeah. so, yes. Passport. They wanted your passport. Okay. <laughs> yes. So we handed over our passports and they're looking at them and talking amongst themselves. And, you know, Nick, my husband and I are just looking at each other going, we don't know what we got ourselves into, but we're pretty sure it's not good. Um <laughs> And so eventually, you know, we can't really communicate with them, but I guess my memories are a little bit hazy because this, this did happen more than 10 years ago. Um, but they must have driven us to the police station or to, you know, some kind of official, uh, building and like they interrogation kind of room. Well, <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't that sinister. It could have been. Okay. <laughs> um, but no, they well, I guess they took us to the only guy who could speak English um, okay. reasonably well. And that was the head of the foreign affairs department for this prefecture. And wow. uh, thankfully, he was a very kind and understanding man. Uh, in addition to being able to speak English. And he was actually Tibetan himself. I think the other police officers who had initially stopped us were Chinese, ethnic Chinese, but this man was ethnic Tibetan. So, um, you know, I think probably had a lot of more sympathy for for us and for the whole situation and understood. Okay, so I should explain why we got surrounded by the police in the first place was because this prefecture had been closed off. And just, and just so the audience knows, what's a prefecture? Oh, um, it's just like a smaller, uh, so say, for example, in the U.S., I'm not sure how it works in Canada, but in the U.S., you have the 50 states, and then mm -hmm. within each state, you would have counties. So okay. there would be lots of different counties. It's just a smaller subdivision 
of of the land, politically speaking. Oh, uh, okay, okay. So, so it would be like um, so in Toronto, in Canada, we have the provinces. So those would be, but the, each one of those provinces have smaller areas, like uh, like Barrie's, like a neighborhood, and you know, uh, Kingston's, like another little city, but it's still within Ontario, kind of thing. So I guess mm-hmm. it would so be like another town or village or city within the larger province kind of thing. Yeah. Or maybe a municipal government, you know, it's a, it's a political governmental division, um, like on a smaller scale than say a province. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. Um, yeah. So it was this uh, particular prefecture, this particular, you know, part of, of Gansu province that uh, had been temporarily closed to foreigners. And we did not know. I mean, Ooh. again, this is 2009, remember. So we were just going by what was written in our Lonely Planet guidebook. And <laughs> that was really the only information that we had. Um, now, of course, it's completely different. And now I do all kinds of online research, you know, for any trip. And I'll look at lots of blogs and things like that. But um, at the time, yeah, we just looked at what was written in the guidebook and that was it. And it turned out that that was a bit outdated. And uh, because Tibetans living in that area and also Tibetans in Tibet um, had been protesting against the Chinese regime that is governing them, um, particularly in the lead up to the Beijing Olympic Games in 2008. Um, And so this was 2009. This was just a few months after that and that this area had remained closed to foreigners so the bus driver the ones who didn't allow us in they were right not to let us on their bus and the one guy who did i don't know why he did um but he must have known that we weren't really supposed to be there and that's why he made us get out of the bus before we got to the bus station because he didn't want to get in trouble for having foreigners on his bus. His bus yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know why he let us on in the first place. It probably yeah. wasn't a good idea. But like, I don't know. These people are crazy, but I don't know if they want to go there. All right, fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so in the end, like I said, we met this head of the foreign affairs department of the prefecture who was a very nice Tibetan man. And um, he explained, oh, you know, this prefecture is closed. You're, you're not allowed to be here. And sorry, you're not going to be able to go to the monastery. And you're going to have to turn around and go back the way you came. But we can't let you on the buses because, you know, you're not supposed to be on the buses. So, um, well, first he took us out to lunch and he bought us <laughs> some noodles. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, that just changed. <laughs> All yeah. right. Okay. That's nice. <laughs> Like I said, though, he was actually very friendly. It could have gone, it could have taken a very different turn if someone else had been in charge. Yeah, yeah. but he took us out to lunch and then he invited us into his car and drove us back personally in his own car all the way across the prefecture border back to a part where we were allowed to be and then waited until a bus passed by and made sure that we could get on the bus and get back to where we had started from. And then that was, that was it. Wow. Oh my gosh. What an incredible story. Wow. Uh, I think the closest I've ever experienced to something like that was not uh, while over overseas. I mean, I, I've, I was going through Istanbul when they had some issues uh, with Ta- Taksim Square. 
Um, mm-hmm. but I, and I saw lots of military and stuff, but nothing that, you know, was crazy or anything like that. Uh, they were celebrating Ramadan, which was okay. Uh, but locally, I think I was with some friends and we happened to just stop at a light and then we were surrounded completely by SWAT and people with guns, but they weren't pointing at, at us or pointing at the vehicle in front of us or, 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 or two vehicles in front of us. And it was like surrounded, like, you know what I mean? So that was the closest I've ever gotten to that kind of experience with what you're talking about. Um, granted, I was still scared even though I was in Toronto, but I mean, you're not even at home. So, I mean, that would be another level of, of scariness. Wow, that's, <laughs> that's crazy. This segment is brought to you by GPS My City. Do you love exploring cities on foot at your own pace? Well, GPS My City's mobile apps, available on iOS and Android, feature self-guided city walks and GPS-powered travel articles written by travel bloggers and travel content creators for over 1,000 cities worldwide. Visit the link in the show notes to learn more. All right, let's break this down. Okay, so so let's let's talk about uh what you i guess what you learned from this experience like what 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 could you do or like what are you happy that you did what are you not happy that you did and what do you think looking back at that what would you have done uh differently so i think looking back um we probably should have done some more research even though online research was not as easy you know in 2009 as it is now we probably still could have found out this information that this mm-hmm. you know this particular part of the country was currently closed to tourists if we had you know looked a little bit deeper or maybe uh, contacted our embassies, you know, the U.S. or Australia embassy to, you know, to check on their current travel uh, advisories and things like that. Um, so that's one thing that I think we probably could have done differently. Mm-hmm. Um, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say, um, yeah, given, given the fact that back then you're right, like you can't just look that stuff up. And I'm going to be honest. I mean, uh when, when I travel around, I'm not really looking for stuff like that, uh, mm-hmm. right? Like, I mean, with the with the Turkey situation, we were scheduled to go to Turkey anyways. Uh, and then, and what was happening in Taksim Square was in the news. Uh, but I had some friends and family that were in Turkey. Well, at the time, I didn't know that I had family in Turkey. I found out after. But, um, but I had friends that lived here that were from Turkey that were from Turkey and they were in touch regularly with their family. And they told us that, you know, whatever the news is saying here, it's a little bit exaggerated, right? So it's still mm-hmm. safe to go. So I said, okay, you know what, we'll go, but we'll, we'll be aware and whatnot. Um, so, I mean, if you were to go do that trip now, then what would you do instead now that you have the tools? Right. Um, yeah, and to be honest, I don't do a lot of that either. You know, I mean, I, I mentioned contacting the embassy and checking the embassy travel advisories, but I'm not in the habit of doing that. And <laughs> exactly, I do- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I know that I've gone to lots of countries that my own embassy advises against, um, you know, or says only go for, for essential travel or, you know, rethink your travel plans. And a lot of times I think that those advisories are a bit exaggerated, you know, and that they, they create fear in people when it's not really necessary. I mean, there are places that I wouldn't go, but there are also places that I would go and that I have been that a lot of people wouldn't, um, and that, you know, it's generally advised not to. Right. So 
Um, but yeah, it probably is a good idea to at least look at those advisories and to see what kinds of things they're talking about, you know? Um, I mean, why do they say that you shouldn't go? Like, is it because of some kind of armed conflict that's going on? Is it because of a health issue? You know, in the case of coronavirus, obviously that's a very different thing. And, you know, I'm certainly not encouraging anyone to travel during the coronavirus pandemic. Um, but yeah, I mean, that information is out there. Um, you can also try to contact local people. Um, I mean, in that particular situation, I don't know how easy it would have been to contact people living in Gansu, uh, cause China, China is really a special case, um, in terms of access to the internet. Like even now I was just there in 2019 and um you know you can't get access to gmail you can't get access to facebook or instagram or um you know lots of things so um but uh, yeah in general i would say that it is probably a good idea to check on the local situation whether that's security or or whatever it is you know if people are saying don't go there, why are they saying that? And then try to, you know, evaluate that information for yourself. Right. Um, usually the government websites, like uh, I'm sure um, you can look at the U.S. one because that's where you're originally from and mm-hmm. uh, probably Portugal because that's where you are now. Uh, mm-hmm. For us, we uh, we just go to the Canadian government website and they would usually have, they have, uh, a section of the website, which is literally just about where you should be traveling or where you shouldn't be traveling. And it, it does give you some sort of reason why. Um, of course, it could be greatly exaggerated. Um, but I mean, you all, I think you have to look at it. Like if Canada is sort of mentioning that, then it just, it should at the very least justify you to research why. Yeah. Not yeah. Your own decision. If you know people that are there, great. Uh, but there's a reason I know, for example, uh, Syria, for example, is on our don't fly to zone. <laughs> you know what I mean? For obvious mm-hmm. reasons, right? Right. So, um, so yeah. So you, you definitely can, can look at your government website and usually there should be a section there about saying which countries they're advising you not to travel to. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So you're definitely right. That's a good place to start. Um, yeah. yeah. And I think another thing that would have helped is if I knew a little bit of Chinese. <laughs> and like ah. I said, um, that is the whole reason that I started studying Chinese uh, right. was purely, you know, as a survival mechanism. Um, not just because of this one incident, but because of the whole experience in general of trying to travel in China and especially in more kind of remote areas of China without speaking Chinese. Uh, was the biggest language barrier that I've ever come across in my life. And I've been to plenty of countries where I don't speak the language, you know, and I might have learned how to say hello and thank you and that's about it. But, you know, you do the rest with charades and stuff. Um, (laughs) But in China, it doesn't really work that way. Um, So, yeah, and nowadays, actually learning a language we're learning a little bit of the language for for travel purposes is so much easier than it was back then. You know, you've got so many apps on your phone and, you know, all kinds of tools and technology 
that are available to to learn a language, which is really cool. And that's something that I love. Like I said, I used to work as a translator and I still do some translation work. So I really love learning foreign languages. And I actually got hooked on Chinese once I started. In the beginning, I just wanted to to learn a few phrases to get by, but then I was fascinated by it. So I, I kept studying it. Um, and I think that that would have been, you know, something that really would have helped because I noticed once I did start learning a few lang- a few phrases and words in Chinese, even a little bit really went a long way. Um, so, yeah, I might have been able to understand the situation a little bit better. That's that's actually that's actually fantastic advice, to be honest. Um, usually I find when you're traveling around. Uh, like if you go to Lisbon, for example, um, I'm pretty sure like the younger generation and most of the people, they have some sort of grasp on English, uh, yeah. especially the touristy areas. Uh, mm-hmm. I remember um, uh, when I went to Lagos in Portugal, uh, one little young guy who was selling ice cream was explaining to me in English that was broken why, why, they're, why the rooster is their national animal. <laughs> and I thought that that was really cool because I saw roosters all over the place. Um, and yeah, they could speak English, right? It's not perfect, but they can speak it. I found that when you go out into villages and smaller towns and smaller cities, then the English is really, really scarce. Uh, mm-hmm. So having some understanding, the because you were essentially visiting uh, a village, like a smaller a smaller area, right? So yeah. uh, they, the English is really not, like no one really speaks English in those smaller villages and smaller towns, no matter which part of the country you're in. So I think to, you're right. To, to have some grasp on the language, I think, will go a long way. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or you can even, you know, if you're not confident enough to try to speak yourself, you can have a little, like, phrasebook app on your phone where you can look for the phrase, the word that you're trying to say, and then you can show that to the person or, you know, have it read out out loud to them or even Google translate uh, or apps translation, automatic machine translation apps like that. Um, I mean, I'm, (laughs) I do have a bit of an issue with those as a professional translator. Like I think people overuse them, (laughs) (laughs) but, um, you know, in a situation like this where you're just trying to communicate, um, they can be really useful for sure. Wow. And, and just quickly, um, how does this story connect to your, um, the third story uh, that you were telling during our game? Uh, Yeah. So um, like I said, this was the first of those little mini trips, these two week trips that we took uh, during this period when we were in Guangzhou Mm-hmm. And then once that period was over, which I think I don't remember exactly how long that lasted, but it was a few weeks or maybe a few months. Um, and then we were going to start from Guangzhou and take a big uh, trip uh, all the way across Central Asia, actually. So through the stands, through Kyrgyzstan and Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan. Ooh, very um, cool. Yeah, so that was the start of that trip was we went to Xinjiang, which is this western province uh, in China that borders, well, it borders a lot of those stands, I believe, but we were going to cross the border from Xinjiang into Kyrgyzstan to start this big Central Asia trip, which we did uh, once we were eventually able to get out of lockdown. Um, And once our visas were valid for Kyrgyzstan, so we were allowed to cross the border 
then um, then that was the start of that big trip. Right. So it was just it was just simply the connection between the stories, just a matter of those smaller um, provinces or or, or uh, towns, if you will, were sort of revolting against the government. The government, right? Government. Yeah. That's so that's the connection between the two. Yeah. So in the first case of the the Tibetan story, it was Tibetans. um, And in Xinjiang, it was Uyghurs. Uh, So um, they are two different ethnic groups. The Tibetans, as far as religion goes, the Tibetans are Buddhist and the Uyghurs are Muslims. Right. Um, And, you know, they the ethnically they're they're very different, but they are both. I mean, I don't know how politically I'm allowed to get on this podcast, but they are both, um, you know, minority groups that are being oppressed, I would say, by right. um, a very controlling Chinese regime that considers these um, these areas where they live to be part of China, even though the people who live there, many of them, you know, definitely don't consider themselves Chinese and would like to govern themselves and, you know, have their their land be self-governing, but the Chinese government uh, does not want that. And so, yeah, it, it's a similar situation in that uh, it was an uprising. The, the Tibetan protest, I'm not sure. I don't think they got violent in the way that the Xinjiang protest did. So the Uyghurs in Xinjiang did, the, the, like I said, there were 140 people who were killed at least that, that first night. And then a a few more. So there were pretty violent clashes between um, the Han Chinese, you know, the ethnic Chinese people living there and the the Uyghurs living there. Um, but yeah, it was kind of a similar situation in that they were both ethnic minorities um, rising up against the Chinese wow. and then the backlash against that. Wow, this is this is absolutely fascinating. Uh, fascinating stuff. And uh, just one quick question. When you said you're learning Chinese, are you learning both? Like, because Mandarin and Cantonese are the, the main ones. So, like, did you choose, like, are you learning both or are you just choosing one? No, I'm just learning Mandarin. Okay. Um, so, yeah, there are actually lots of different dialects that are spoken. And I know. I know there's lots. I know for sure. Um, here yeah. in Toronto, th- those two tend to be the, the main ones. It's Cantonese and Mandarin. Right. Yeah. I think Cantonese is probably um, so well known outside of China because a lot of the immigrants who, you know, went on to establish Chinese communities in other parts of the world originally came from Canton, from which is where Guangzhou is, uh, the, ah. the place where we were where we were working off and on, you know, during that period. Um, the original name for or I shouldn't say original, the previous name for Guangzhou was Canton. So oh, that's why okay. it's called Cantonese. Um, gotcha. um, so yeah, like lots of Chinese restaurants around the world are run by Cantonese speakers. Um, um, but, but when you're in China, Mandarin is definitely the main language or the, the lingua franca, I would say like, it's the one that they're all, taught in schools, you know, even if they don't learn it as their first language, they all learn it in school, theoretically anyway. So it's the one that everyone can speak to some extent. 
So that's when I say Chinese, I mean Mandarin. Mandarin. Okay. Very interesting. Oh my gosh. This is, I've learned so much today. This is fantastic. Um, <laughs> thank you so much for sharing your story. Um, before, before we go, um, where can people find you and your social media handles and all that stuff? So uh, The Nomadic Vegan is my blog. Uh, so that's my main little home on the internet. Uh, if you want info, first of all, about finding vegetarian and vegan food all around the world, um, that's my main specialty. And I love, you know, discovering uncovered like local traditional dishes that are part of the traditional cuisine that happen to be vegan friendly. Um, so I talk a lot about food and restaurants and things like that, but I also talk about other aspects of travel and, you know, do top things to do in a particular destination um, all over the world, starting with Europe, but then lately I've done a lot of uh, Asian content as well and a bit in Africa. Um, so yeah, you can go to thenomadicvegan.com or on social media, I'm nomadic underscore vegan on Instagram and Twitter and Pinterest. And then Facebook, uh, Facebook doesn't believe in underscores, so I couldn't get nomadic underscore vegan. <laughs> but use a dot. Yeah, yeah, yeah nomadic dot vegan. Yeah. Same thing with rudderless travel. I couldn't get the underscores. I had to use a dot, yeah. <laughs> right. I don't know what they have against underscores, but I'm not sure. if you just search for nomadic vegan, you'll find me on Facebook as well. Awesome, awesome. And uh, yeah, and you know what? Uh, let your husband know if he wants to be on the show to tell that crazy African story. Um, <laughs> I would be more than happy to have him on the show. So you talk to him and then get back yeah. to me on that. And talk, right. We'll talk again soon. Okay. Thanks All a lot. Right. It was fun. All right. Case closed. That's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Don't forget that you can listen to the show over at www.travelhorrorstoriespodcast.com. And if you're listening on your mobile device, please take a second to give the episode a five-star rating and leave a comment. It really helps the show and its episodes get discovered by more people. Plus, your feedback will help me tweak and change the show to make it the best show on the internet. Yes. Cheers. Cheers.